Revelation 12, portions of it today. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads. On its horns were ten crowns, and on its heads were blasphemous names. The beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. The dragon gave the beast his power, his throne, and great authority. One of its heads appeared to be fatally wounded, but its fatal wound was healed. The whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war against it? If anyone has ears to hear, let him listen. If anyone is to be taken captive, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. This calls for endurance and faithfulness from the saints. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and compels the earth and those who live on it to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. It also performs great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And it makes everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. The beast's name or the number of its name This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, because it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. All right, good afternoon, everyone. I'm on, right? Cool. Um, So hey, look, uh, before we we get into our text, obviously there's there's a lot of crazy stuff we have to work through, Um, uh, but I did uh, want to uh, address just a couple things. Uh, First, uh, I want to personally, just as your pastor, like invite you uh, to Membership Matters, the class that Alyssa just talked about, um, especially if this is not your church home. So, or sorry, rather, if this is your church home, um, (laughs) hey, if this is not your church home, like, hey, you do you. You know, we're here to answer any questions that you might have, but uh, if this is your church home and you have not already completed the membership process, um, this is an opportunity for us to just to sit down and say, like, hey, here's what this means uh, to call this family. Here's what this means to call this home. Not just what it means for you, but what it means for us and our commitment uh, to you over the long haul. And so uh, there's some important stuff to go through about um, what, what that means to be a member. Uh, that's one of our distinctives as a church. We call it meaningful uh, membership. We believe that church membership, as it's described in the Bible, is so much more than, hey, I signed on this dotted line, but it's more like I am entrusting my growth in Christ. I'm entrusting my personal discipleship to this community of believers who are family to me, and I want to be family to them. And so uh, uh, it's sort of a, uh, an introduction to uh, our family. There's no obligation uh, to be a member, if you go to that class, uh, it's simply an opportunity for us to describe to you why membership matters. Who'd have thunk, right? So uh, that's the first thing. Uh, second thing, um, I, I want to, uh, as, as, your, as your pastor, as your friend, uh, especially as your brother in Christ, um, I feel like I owe you guys an apology. 
I owe this congregation an apology. Uh, I had a uh, good friend uh, earlier this week uh, who had uh, called me out uh, in a loving way, in a friendly way, in a gracious way on something that uh, I said in last week's sermon. Uh, I praise God for that word uh, of correction. Uh, I think we should all be thankful and praise God for uh, friends who, who love us and believe in us, but um, at the same time are, are not too impressed uh, by us, that they're, not, that they're unwilling to, to speak hard words, you know what I mean? And so uh, he uh, basically um, challenged me on uh, something unkind uh, that I said. And uh, if you remember uh, in last week's uh, sermon, and if you weren't here for last week, uh, then hopefully you don't think like ill of me after I describe it, like you said that, right? Uh, but like uh, basically last week, um, I was uh, making a point um, about uh, how, how certain camps will um, interpret the text we went through last week, uh, and maybe because of their, um, their political worldview, they maybe might superimpose uh, the United States of America into the text uh, where it should be clear that America was not intended, right? And so I think that that way of interpreting that text is wrong and is harmful, um, but what I should not have done is I said that anybody who, who, who does believe that and follows that uh, is just an outright clown, and I, I, shouldn't, have, I shouldn't have said that um, just uh, because... This is one of these like non-essential uh, things that we can we can disagree on in the church. It doesn't make people who believe that like false prophets or false teachers like wolves that we should protect the church from. Um, it's uh, just a significant issue that we happen to significantly agree on. Uh, and me publicly saying to our church family uh, that anybody who who thinks that way or leans that way as a clown is just uh, inappropriate uh, and unchristlike. And uh, something that uh, I, I don't want to happen again uh, from, from my mouth or anyone else's mouth from behind the pulpit. And uh, as a church that, you know, we talk about how we value grace and safety and being patient with one another. Um, the, the words in, that I, I chose were, um, I think, maybe too in, inflammatory, inflammatory. So, um, sorry. Um, Hope you'll forgive me in that, show me grace in that, and uh, just wanted to own that in front of you guys and make a, a commitment uh, to uh, avoid such conduct in the future. So with that, I'd love to pray. So would you bow your heads with me? Uh, Father, thank you for grace. Thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ uh, and a church family that um, can have real, uh, honest conversations that we can be um, truly just broken and imperfect, imperfect uh, before one another, uh, knowing that every single one of us is in desperate need of your mercy and grace. God, we thank you for the opportunity now to walk through your word, to be challenged, be fed, to be reminded of how our enemy, the devil, his demons, and all their works and effects might... Um, be positioned against us in a way that seeks to destroy us, to entice us, to destroy our, our brothers and, and sisters around the world. I'm thinking of the persecuted church in, in China, in Ukraine, in Pakistan, and, and, and so many other places, God. We, we pray for those brothers and sisters right now uh, and, and ask, God, that you would um, just make us people 
brothers and sisters who are uh, more bold in the face of the enemy and more faithful to you in our suffering. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, so let's just dive right in. We're in chapter 13 of the book of Revelation. Uh, this is a passage of scripture that, that, that is peeking behind uh, the curtain of history to where we see that we have this great enemy uh, who is described as a dragon, uh, which we saw last week in Revelation 12, a dragon who's out to destroy us. Uh, he's not a literal dragon, right? We're not expecting to see an actual, like, literal dragon flying around seeking to destroy us. This is figurative speech. This is apocalyptic speech to paint uh, a vivid picture in order to convey a significant reality. Daryl Johnson, a Bible commentator, uh, puts it this way. He says, images, speaking about apocalyptic images like we see in Revelation, Images can quickly and effectively convey that which we struggle to put into words. Imagery goes beyond the intellect and through the emotions into the imagination, grabbing hold of us at the deepest recesses of our being. And so we, we saw through this vivid imagery last week, we saw that there's this dragon, our enemy, the devil, is pictured as a dragon who first sought to devour a baby. That baby we, we, we saw is uh, supposed to sig signal us to uh, our Lord Jesus. But because he failed to devour the baby, he now turns his attention to those who, who also, who are brothers and sisters of the baby. Basically, all of those who are Christians throughout history. He turns his attention now to those who hold to the commands of God and the testimony of Jesus. And because... Because he's so ticked, because this dragon is so enraged that he couldn't devour the baby, he's now enraged against God's mission. He's enraged against God's mission to save sinners from every generation, from every tribe, from every tongue and nation. And if you seek to understand that, if you seek to understand the rage of our enemy, you might better understand maybe some of the hardship and heartache and pain and, and suffering that you've possibly endured in the name of Christ. Chapter 12, it gave us this, this sort of cosmic perspective of this spiritual war battling on. And this week, we get to see kind of what that spiritual war now looks like on the ground, how it fleshes out in our lives. How many of you guys have seen this, uh, like uh, any of the recent run of uh, James Bond movies with Daniel Craig, right? So... Fantastic movies. I think they just, they just had the, the last one, No Time to Die, like some months ago. Um, if you're familiar uh, with these, this series of movies, I mean, really, if you're just familiar with, like, James Bond, the whole 007 narrative at all, then you know that uh, the typical plot line is you've got this special agent, 007, who, who is, with each book and with each movie, he's, he's hunting down some top dog villain who's just up to no good, usually like a world-ending catastrophe level type of stuff. And in the second to last movie of the Daniel uh, Craig variety, uh, Bond, he actually discovers that this whole time there's been this global criminal organization called Spectre that was actually behind 
all of the villains that he come up, came up against in, in the previous films. It's like this QAnon-level global conspiracy, except uh, without the reptiles, and it's, and it's actually happening, like in the movie plot, right? And so in some way, in some way, that's what's happening here in Revelation 13, except in reverse, because first we learn about who's behind it all. We learned last week about the dragon who, like Spectre, is behind all the suffering, all the pain, all the hardship that God's children are going to endure throughout history. But he doesn't, he doesn't do this directly. He actually deploys two beasts to help him draw the church of Jesus Christ away from Christ and into danger. Historical Christianity has, has always held that the problem, the problem that we face is certainly in here, but it's not just in here, and it's certainly out there like in, in the world and in culture, but it's not just out there. Historical Christianity has also taught that there are very personal evil forces that are actively working against us. Charles Baudelaire, a French poet, was famous for once saying that the devil's finest trick is to persuade you that he does not exist. And John now, John the apostle, he's, he's using these image of these massive scary beasts to sort of stir our imagination to the real and present danger before us. To say that, no, our enemy does exist. And he is a formidable foe. And you should be aware of his tactics. The lesson of Revelation 13, I'll give you the big idea, is that there are real spiritual forces that want to destroy your body by death or your soul by leading you away from Jesus and the everyday stuff of life. But for those of us who are in Christ, these beasts will never succeed. So I want to start now by introducing the two beasts, and then we're going to talk about how the heck we make sense of this chapter in our daily lives, all right? So first, simply number one, the beast of the sea. Let me introduce to you the dragon's beast of the sea, beginning in verse 1 of Revelation 13. John, still receiving this vision in the spirit of the Lord, he says, And then I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems, which are like jeweled crowns that signify authority, ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth were like a lion's mouth. And, it, and to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Now, the language here in this text, I know it's like a crazy visual, right? That crazy language, that crazy visual is pulled straight out of another piece of apocalyptic literature. It's pulled straight out of Daniel chapter 7. Where in Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, we read about four beasts 
that come up against God's people from, wouldn't you know, the sea. Comes out from the sea. The first beast is described like a lion, the second like a bear, the third like a leopard, and the fourth is indescribable. It's this apocalyptic symbol in Daniel 7 of all the empires that have rejected God from the center of their lives and are now working against God's people. Most likely representing in Daniel 7 the empires of like Mede and Assyria, Babylon, Persia. Now, now why, why is it that, that John in, in Revelation 13 is making a connection to Daniel 7? It's because he wants to show us that the beast from the sea that was manifested in each of these four in Daniel 7 will be manifested in other human kingdoms to come throughout the end of the age. And so this beast that comes up out of the sea really represents any demonically manipulated political power or governing state that is used by the dragon to pressure disciples of Jesus to turn away from him, to turn away from Christ. This is the beast. This is a spiritual force that is pulling strings to make sure that God's people throughout history in different times and in different places will be persecuted. And this beast, he demands worship and loyalty. Look at verse, verse 3 now, verse 3 and 4. It says that one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marbled as they followed the beast, uh, which is a way of telling us, you know, since it's kind of Christ-like language, that this, this beast is almost going to be like a parody of Christ, seeking to... to to be similar to Christ, but in a mocking way. And in verse 4, they worshipped the dragon, uh, the followers of the beast, they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to this beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Now, with that verse, if you know your Bible, you might recognize this language from the Old Testament. In a number of places, this is how the Old Testament actually speaks of Yahweh of the God of the Bible. For example, in, in 1 Samuel 2.2, which we read as our call to worship, it says, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. You see how those are worshiping the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Similar language going on there. Language that's usually reserved for the Lord, but here in Revelation 13, it's ironically used for this beast, this demonic force. Verse 5, and the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Now, 42 months, we've actually seen this number before. In chapter 11, it was described as 1,260 days. In chapter 12, we saw last week, it was described as a time and times and half a time, which is three and a half years. And we've established already that, that this number, the significance of this, is that it is a symbolic number that represents the whole period of time between the first and the, the second coming of Christ. 
So now, what does that tell us? That tells us that until Jesus returns, because we, we now, we exist after the first coming of Christ, right? But is, has the second coming of Christ happened? No, not yet. We live between the now and the not yet. And because we live in the now and the not yet, until Jesus returns at the end of history in his second coming, this beast, this beast is going to let God's people have it. Because this beast is hell-bent on working through political powers, through governing authorities like Rome for the Christians in the first century who were reading this. Or today, countries like Russia, and Pakistan, China, Nigeria, North Korea. The list goes on. He works through, this beast works through political powers to persecute the followers of Jesus and seek to snuff them out, to destroy them. And he is resilient. Just when you think he's been knocked down, another one rises in a different form. Seen this throughout history as empires rise and fall, as they persecute Christians. We've seen this in the last two centuries as world wars come and go. This beast is resilient, seeking to destroy God's people. It continues in verse 6, and it says that this beast opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, not fully conquer them, but to conquer them in, in some way, to make them suffer. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. And then he quotes from Isaiah, and he says, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. That if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Bad news, right? That's why he has this call to endurance that he ends verse 10 with. And so here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Now, Listen, I know we just went through a lot of verses, but I want you to see how this beast and the worship of the beast is described. A lot of people are going to end up worshiping this beast, following this beast, being persecuted by this beast to the point that they break and they're like, all right, have me. I'm going to follow you instead of the ones that the Christians talk about. And it says, everyone who dwells on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Listen, you need to remember. You need to know and remember that those who belong to Jesus, those who are followers of Jesus that truly belong to him, they have their names already written. 
already written down, already preserved on a page in the Lamb's book of life. What does that tell us? Jesus, before the foundation of the world, he knows who are his. It's mind-boggling, I know, but Jesus, he, he, know, he exists outside of space, matter, time. He knows who are his, and his spirit will help them persevere to the end. So whether that means that you are thrown into captivity because you refuse to renounce Christ at the demands of the state, or maybe it means that you're killed and martyred for the same reason as many people in the first century were, including some of John's fellow apostles. Even in the midst of those possibilities, this vision is saying, look, know that your name is in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Know that Jesus, he will carry you through to the holy city of God. That is a reality for every Christian, for every Christian facing persecution, for every Christian wondering if their government is going to find out that they belong to Christ and seek to eliminate them, seek to separate them from each other. Jesus said the gates of hell won't even prevail against the building of his church. The Bible tells us that God has an elect people from every nation, from every generation, and he will reach every single one. That is a reality for the Christians that were suffering persecution in the first century, and it is the reality for Christians suffering persecution in the 21st century. It tells us that, 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 that we, we don't look, we don't look at the world, we don't look at the news the way that others do. We don't, we don't look at the world the way unbelievers do. They, they don't see a plan. They don't see reality for what it really is. And look, when, when Satan and our first parents introduced sin into the world, like he thought, the devil thought that he was thwarting the plan of God. And, and if that's what he thought was happening, then like, dude, he's an idiot. Because before the world even existed, the plan was for the Lamb of God to lay down his life for undeserving sinners whose names he already knows. Demonic forces will vie for your allegiance. They'll vie for your love. But those whose names are in the book will not give in. He will keep them to the end. Leon Morris says that when a man's name is written in the book of life, he will not be forgotten. His place is secure, unmovable, unshakable. This book, it unveils to us the world as it really is so that we might endure rather than give up in suffering, so that we might trust God rather than be discouraged by suffering. How can we do this? We can do this because those whose names 
or in that book will see the glory of the lamb is more precious, more beautiful, more compelling than anything else this world has to offer, even more precious than life itself. So they say along with Paul, hey, you want to throw me on captivity? Go ahead, that's not going to stop me from following Christ. Oh, you want to you kill me? Well, to live is Christ, but to die is, is gain. That's even better. He's more precious than life itself. Secondly, this text introduces us to the beast of the earth. We see in verse 11, John, he says, then, then I, I saw another beast rising out of the earth. The first one came out of the sea. This one comes out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. So really quick, it looks like a lamb, which means it seems innocent and almost Christ-like, but it's actually controlled by the enemy, by the dragon. Verse 12, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. So, while the first beast was political in nature, the function of this second beast is religious in nature. He seeks to get people to worship the dragon and his beasts. Later in Revelation, this beast is actually referred to as the false prophet. Deception is its strategy. Its goal is to get people to, to stop worshiping the lamb and to start worshiping the dragon and his beasts. What we see between the difference between these two beasts, the one that comes out of the sea and the land, is that the dragon, he has two primary strategies. Do you see them? He's got two primary strategies to oppress and to entice, to persecute, and to seduce. For example, in China, he mostly is working through the beast of the sea, through Christian persecution. In America, he mostly works through the beast of the earth, draws us by enticing us away from Christ and towards the things of this world. And look, we need... We need to be perceptive of both of these strategies because we'll see both at work in this present age. Verse 13, he continues, it says that this beast, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth. Again, its, its goal is deception here. That's its tool. Telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Now the symbolism here, here should, should make it obvious to us that there is a deliberate Attempt by this beast also to mimic Christ in almost a mocking sort of way. 
Talks about how this beast performs signs and wonders. Hey, Jesus performed signs and wonders. But this beast, it's got its own signs and wonders. Except these signs and wonders are not by the power of the spirit, but by the power of Satan. And by performing these signs and wonders, he's going to lead people astray as a false prophet. We see this all throughout the Bible, that miraculous signs have always been a feature of false prophets, not just true ones. And this beast, he demands worship even to the point of also threatening death to anybody who doesn't follow. Verse 16 and 17, it says, also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the, the name of the beast or the number of its, of it, its name. He threatens death and, and the loss of, of business and economic value to those who don't follow him. Talks about this mark that goes on the right hand and on the forehead. Here we are. <laughs> what is popularly called the mark of the beast. What is it? Right? That's what you want to know. What is it? What is the mark of the beast? A lot of modern Bible pundits interpret this as some physical marker that will indicate that because you have this mark, you therefore belong to Satan. Because you have this physical mark. And that's how you have some people over the last few years who've been like, no, I, I, I'm not getting that vaccine. I'm, I'm refusing to get the vaccine because I heard in an article on Facebook, that it's the mark of the beast. Or people saying, no, the Bitcoin, that sounds dangerous, right? Trading that sounds like it might be the mark of the beast. But before that, these, these same people were saying, you know, what this is saying is that that number 666 will get like tattooed on your forehead. Or they're going to put a barcode or like a microchip on your wrist that's going to link to all your accounts. Now, I want you to just think for a second about how the dragon was described in Revelation 12. Our enemy, the devil, Satan, the great deceiver who's been deceiving people since the dawn of human history, he's smarter than that nonsense. He's smarter than that. The Bible says that our enemy, the devil, is cunning and deceptive. You really think that this beast is gonna, gonna go like he, he's gonna going to get like the higher echelons of world government to say, hey, unless we put this chip in your arm, then you can't do business with each other. And no one's gonna get fooled by that. Be like, nice try, guys, right? I read Revelation. You're not going to get me. I'm not falling for that one. No, the enemy's tactics are going to, are, they're not going to be that cringeworthy, all right? They're not going to be that cringeworthy. So, so then when the world is the mark of the beast, here's, here's what's happening. Here's your answer, right? John is pulling imagery 
which again, if you know your Old Testament, he's pulling imagery that is clearly from the Exodus and Deuteronomy, where after the Israelites were delivered from slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh's rule, they were given a command, they were given the Shema, telling them who their God is and what it means to live for him. And they were told, hey, remember who your God is and what he's done. In Deuteronomy, it says, hey, take the law, take what God has taught you, put it on your doorpost so you never forget it. Recite it to your children when you go down and when you rise up so they don't forget it. Oh, and by the way, put it on your head and put it on your hands. And so do you... You, they, they did that. They actually did that in Deuteronomy. Like on, on, on their heads, they'd have like these, these turban-like headbands with uh, markers that, that, that symbolize the law of God, who their God is, the one true God, Yahweh, who delivered them. And on their hands, on their wrist, you'd have these strings that served as a visible reminder to, to tell you and your neighbor, hey, look, we belong to God now. We belong to him, not Pharaoh. We've been delivered by Yahweh from the grip of the enemy. You see, the head, the head has to do with how you think, has to do with your ideology. Your hands has to do with how you live, your habits, your behavior, like what you, what you do. And so Revelation 13 is telling us, look, this is how the beast gets into your life. He gets into your life by claiming your head. He gets into your life by claiming your hands. Remember the beast's mode of deception is to, is to change what you worship. And when we talk about what it is that we worship, we're not, we're not talking about like what we, what we do here on Sundays with like worship music. We're talking about like wholehearted worship, like true worship. We're talking about what we give ourselves to, what we give our lives to. When we're talking about worship, we're talking about what defines us, what gives us our identity the things that we grant the authority to tell us who we are and what makes us matter. Our culture, our culture says, hey, look, if you, have, if you have this much money, if you have this many kids, if you have this kind of home, if you have this type of success, if you live in this kind of neighborhood, then, hey, this is who you are. And if we go along, if we go along, we're following this beast. And he's leading us away from Christ. See, this passage is revealing that beneath the surface, many of us, we have a sign on our heads and on our hands that say, this is what has delivered me from a meaningful or a meaningless existence. Here's the thing that has delivered me from a meaningless existence. Here's the thing that is my functional savior. And Jesus is trying to take that reality 
that's hidden underneath the surface behind the curtains of the lives that we, we front with, that we posture with. He's trying to get behind the curtain and bring that reality up into the foreground, up on stage in front of you. He's taking what is happening in our minds at a subconscious level and he's bringing it to your attention out of love for you to say, look, resist this. Resist this. Turn from this and, and, and turn back to me, Jesus says. Man, we need, we need wisdom to be able to do that, don't we? That's what the text says in the next verse, verse 18. He says, this calls for wisdom. But the one who has understanding, calculate the number of the beasts, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, this is the moment that if you weren't waiting for the last one, you're waiting for this one, Right? <laughs> Finally, it's here. Finally, he's going to talk about the Antichrist, the 666. Like, no doubt, some of you are wondering, like, who I'm going to name, right? Who am I going to name as a great Antichrist marked by 666? Listen, there have been endless attempts to decode this number throughout history. There's folks that have been saying that if you misspell, not even joking, they say if you misspell Nero's name, and translate those letters into numbers, kind of like we, we do when like we're, we're dialing a hotline sometimes, right? Like if you assign each of these letters a specific number, then if you do it a certain way, it's going to add to 666. Whoa, right? Man, that sounds like a stretch, right? I mean, you pick any formula of like advanced trig and, 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 and take anyone's misspelled name, and you can work it to add that 666 somewhere, right? You see 666 talking about like the end of the world and the Antichrist, the apocalypse in, in movies. They talk about how the, oh, the Antichrist, he's born at 7.06 a.m. or 6 a.m. plus 66 minutes, oh, right? Like an American horror story a couple years ago, the spawn of Satan. He, sh- he shows up at like this Church of Satan meeting and, and it's like this comical scene. I, I can't like recommend the show, unfortunately, because I'm your, I'm your pastor. But I saw this scene where, where he's like, he like walks, he walks up, uh, the, the spawn of Satan walks to this, this Church of Satan meeting and, and, and they're like, who, who are you? Like interrupting our movie, our, 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 uh, our movie, our our, uh, our service, uh, and he says who he is, and they're like, yeah, well, prove to us you're the Dark Lord's son. And he, like, strides up there, and he goes, and he's got, like, 666 tattooed on the back of his ear, and they're like, oh, it's him, right? Like, dude, it's, like, embarrassing how cartoonish this, this whole thing with 666 is in pop culture. I think that's actually part of the dragon's cunning nature, by the way. That this beast gets depicted as this cartoonish sort of jester in pop culture rather than the terrifying and cunning beast that he is. That we need to be alert about. People throughout history have named almost every American president um, within the last 50 years. As the Antichrist, I mentioned Nero was described as as the Antichrist. Uh, uh, Every pope 
uh, has been described as the Antichrist. Um, so which one is it? I'll tell you who it is. Just kidding. I'm going to let you down. You probably guessed by now. That's not how this number works. That's not how 666 works. So then how does it work? Remember, in Revelation, it's a symbolism that matters. And if you, do you remember what the number seven stands for? It stands for completeness. That's why we have six days of creation, however you slice it, whether that's literal or figurative, the Bible describes it as six days of creation and then one day of rest. Seven is the number for completeness. Six, therefore, is the number of incompleteness. Six is the number of man when he's without God. And remember, the best the beast can do is mimic the real Messiah. And he's a parody of the real lamb who is worthy to break the seal. He's a parody of the lamb. He's this, this weak, janky little lamb, not the lamb of glory. Not the lamb of glory that we read about in Revelation 4 and 5. So the best he can do, the best this beast can do is, 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 is try and mimic so why then are there three sixes? It's because three, if you remember, is also a number of completeness. Like our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so get this. This is John's way of saying that this beast is completely incomplete. He is completely incomplete. How rad is that? Like divine shade thrown at the dragon. When we're talking about the number of the beast, we're talking about putting the ideology of the beast on your head or on your hand. We're talking about what consumes our thoughts, what informs our internal character, what's made manifest in our behavior. And some of us, some of us, we, we already have the mark of the beast on us. Because we're not serious about personal holiness. It's when we flirt with disobedience. It's when we flirt with sin. It's when we live for the applause of men rather than the glory of God. It's when we live for the kingdom of world instead of the kingdom of man. It's when we back up the oppressors rather than seek justice for the voiceless. Some of us already have the mark of the beast on us. We are not seeking justice, loving mercy, walking humbly with God, repenting of sin, turning to Christ. And so the dragon gets the world to follow him. He gets the world to follow him by either sweetening the deal or by making it so hard to follow the real Messiah, Jesus Christ, by persecution. And look, when you do follow him, when you do follow him, verse 17 and 18 says you bear his mark. 
The point is this, is that if you are marked by God with the Holy Spirit, you belong to him. If you are marked by the beast, you belong to the beast. The seal that Christ puts on us is one of freedom, one of deliverance, one of rest, one of bearing the fruits of the Spirit. The marks of the beast is one of enslavement and imprisonment and the impulse to keep going and going and never giving you rest. And so through this apocalyptic image, God the Holy Spirit speaking through the Apostle John is saying, endure, seek wisdom. That's how we can overcome this beast. That's how we can overcome these two beasts, this unholy trinity between the dragon and his two beasts. That's how we can overcome them in the everyday stuff of life. So, let me go through this really quick, and then we'll close. How can we overcome the beast in the everyday stuff of life? Um, I don't think I have slides for these, but I'll just give them to you. Number one, we can overcome the beast because the lamb already has. The lamb already has. Christ's victory is not a future one. He is already won. It began in the past. Jesus Christ, he reigns right now. His kingdom isn't fully realized yet, but that doesn't make him any less the victor by virtue of his resurrection from the dead, all right? The dragon was already defeated at the resurrection. That's why he's so furious. That's why he's turned his attention from the Messiah to the mission of the Messiah and trying to, to get the, the church off, off her mission because he knows his time is short. And so he's furious. But we can overcome the beast because the lamb already has. Number two, we can overcome him through wisdom. That's what we just read in verse 18, through wisdom. How do we get wisdom? By knowing the word of God and knowing Christ our Lord. This is how you can tell the difference between Christ and the spirit of Antichrist. See, it's important for us to know that you don't fight these beasts by studying everything you can about the beasts. You fight the beasts by knowing the real thing. The way we spot the deception of these beasts, these counterfeit saviors, is by knowing what the real savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, what he looks like what he sounds like. And so we spend time in the word. We get acquainted with Christ through the gospel in the word. It, I mean, you, you've heard this before. Like this is how, this is how our, our, our people at the treasure, how they find counterfeit bills, right? They find counterfeit bills because they know the real thing so well that they can spot a fake. They don't study all the different varieties of, of fake bills. No, no, they, so are, they are so attuned and so learned about the character and the intricacies of the, count, or of the real thing that they can spot a counterfeit from a mile away. Look, when you know, when you know the character and the beauty and the majesty of the real Savior, 
when you know what he looks like, when you truly know him, know, know him, know his character, his beauty, his majesty, then you can look at any counterfeit and be like, Dude, that's a lame substitute for the real thing. I'm not going there. I'm not touching that. Number three, we can overcome by enduring patiently. Enduring patiently, we read about this in verse 10. Look, when we read these chapters in Revelation, we often resonate with how it, it talks about the, the struggle that it can be to follow Jesus. That there's a cost to following Jesus, right? Like many of us, we feel that tension. We feel that weight. That there's a cost to persevering. But this book, Revelation, it shows us that there's meaning and significance to our suffering. We can look the beast in the eye because we know what Revelation says. We can look the beast in the eye and say, come at me. You got nothing on me. You can't, you can't touch me. And then you turn to God and then you say, Lord, take care of this. Take care of this. Like the Bible invites us to pray to him. You see, the real Savior, the real Savior doesn't save us with empty promises. He didn't coerce us with the power of his hand. No, he laid his life down with his outstretched hands. He became a substitute for us on the cross for our sins. When Jesus died on the cross and breathed his very last breath, I mean, man, it was a spectacle. People came out to see them beat him. When he uttered, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some people misheard him, and they're like, I think he's calling out for Elijah. Let's see if Elijah comes. And then, and then, and then somebody tried to, 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 to give him water, and they're like, no, don't give him water. Let's give him vinegar instead. They made a spectacle out of him. They were mocking him. They, they mimicked a real crown with a crown of thorns. They mocked him. When he breathed his very last breath, at the very moment of his breath, or of his death, centurion who saw the way that Jesus died, a Roman soldier who saw the way that Jesus breathed his last breath, said, truly, this man must be the son of God. In other words, Jesus draws us to himself not through spectacle and wonders, but in his death. Not by his power, but by his weakness. Not in how he defeated his human enemies, but in how he was willing to die for them. The beast, the parody, the lamb who was worthy. Jesus, our Jesus, is the real deal. In Revelation, John is calling us to have wisdom and endurance to look through the parody, to look through the propaganda, and to look at the real lamb, endure faithfully to the end. I see the need in my own heart 
to do that. I see the need in my own city for us to do that. It's a call that we have to give our attention to. So let's ask God for his help. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.